We are grateful this morning, Lord, to be in your presence. We are just grateful for all that you are doing, God, um, that you are a wonder-working God. You are, we've gotten to see miracles of how you heal, of how you, you know, literally bring us back into new life with you, Father, in, in celebrating the baptisms a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. We are grateful for you this morning, Lord. Reveal to us your word. May we understand, just as you've been very intentional and careful with your people in this season, um, where Israel is and also with New River Fellowship. Father, may we see your heart, your desire for us, and how we can turn and live that back to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, we are in the last little bit of the golden calf story uh, in Exodus 34 this morning. So if you've missed or haven't been with us for any part of this, we've been reading in the middle of all the blueprints at the back of Exodus, there's this one random story that, uh, for me, I was familiar with growing up because it's a wonderful story to tell kids. Israel worshiping this golden calf and God saying, what are you doing? Uh, but we've been kind of unpacking it, saying there's, there's a lot more going on in there than just, oh, they're, they're worshiping something wrongly. We talked two weeks ago about how this is really going all the way back to Abraham. This is kind of like God courting his people, as in Hebrew tradition would a wedding, that the, the night that God was, comes and finds Israel with the golden calf in a, in a wedding analogy would be kind of like the honeymoon night. And he's catching his bride to be in bed with somebody else. And we learned that that's really what sin has done. I mean, it is a disobedience. It is a rebellion against God. But the emotional piece, you know, we think of sin as disobedience, you know, not measuring up to a standard. In that also is this, this emotional piece where, you know, God has made us for him. And this is what, what sin has done to us. It makes us as these unfaithful uh, you know, partners that God has a standard, a life for us, and we've said we'd rather go do something else. And we saw two weeks ago in that story how but God's heart is still gracious, which is mind-blowing to me how gracious he is. And that he even sets aside one who will be an interceder on our behalf. And for Israel, that's Moses, for us, that would be Jesus. And so last week, we kind of start to see the light bulb go off, that Moses and Israel finally get it. They finally understand what is it that God has been after, what is God asking them to do, and they kind of step up into these roles, that we get to see both Moses and Israel understand God wants us to be in his presence. That that's really what he's pursuing in us. So what do we do? We strive to work towards restoration. God, if you want me to be with you, then I want to be with you. Teach me what that looks like. And God, I, I want to lead others to be with you as well. And Exodus 34, guys, kind of, kind of shows God's response to all of this, right? We saw his initial response to his people's sin. He's angry. He's frustrated. And yet he's also gracious, so God in and of himself is able to hold all those things in balance. But the way that God moves here in Exodus 34, which sets the tone for the last half of the, or the last half, the last five chapters, we're more than halfway done. The last five chapters of this book tells us something. I don't know if you guys remember, but I, I think I shared two weeks ago, God, you see him angry, you see him jealous, but he's not consumed. 
by his anger, by his jealousy. He's not just acting flippantly. It tells us that, yes, God is angry, God is jealous, but there's something else that God is ultimately working toward. He can keep his emotions in check much better uh, than we can, being the Lord of our emotions. And Exodus 34 this morning, church, is really going to show us what, how does God respond to sin? I mean, truly, when he sees that in his people, he sees them in sin, sees them working through repentance. What is God doing in the midst of this? And it's important for us to keep this in mind, church, because when we see how God chooses to respond to sin, what God does that is so effective in drawing his people into righteousness, well, church, it's not too much of a stretch for us to say, if that's how God responds to my sin, first off, maybe that's how I need to respond to my sin, but also... How should I respond to the sin of others? Beginning in chapter 34, um, we're going to see this, guys. There's really three things that God does when he responds to our sin. First is he introduces himself to us, which is not where I was expecting God to start. But we'll see that from chapter 34. God first starts by introducing himself. He then invites us to covenant with him. And then he draws us near through his Messiah. So there's an introduction, an invitation, and a kind of a pulling, pulling into life together. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Some of your translations may say for the thousandth uh, generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he, said, he being God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. <laughs> For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, 
that you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters who are after their gods and make your sons who are after their gods. God says, just don't, don't get involved with this. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you first came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the, ten, of the, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And then last bit of chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. God, we are confronted with just how deep and wide your grace is this morning. It is too good to not believe, Lord. As we are grateful for that, Father, may we, may we see your heart toward us, even in our sin, even in our brokenness, Father. And as we start to learn if this is how you are with us, Lord, God, may your spirit grow within us the ability to do likewise toward others. In your name we pray, amen. So chapter 33 ends with God promising, okay, Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to bring my presence back to you. God promises these things. And then chapter 34, we see, yeah, God goes and does what he promises, which doesn't seem to be that big of a deal uh, unless you're keeping in mind all this wedding context, right? What God is actually doing with his people. And I love the very first thing God does is he comes back to them as he brings his presence to them, which is what they've been asking, the first thing God does 
as he introduces himself. He, he asks Moses to first, you know, kind of recarve the covenants. He says, okay, Moses, if I'm going to come be with you, here's what this is going to look like. And he starts with the covenant. And it's, it's wonderful because Moses is starting to see this is just who God is. Like, ever since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these generations, God has been on this, you know, to Moses, he's thinking God's kind of fixated with this whole covenant deal. But God is just showing Moses, like, I am the same God that your forefathers experienced, that all those that came before you experienced. I'm the same God. He's about the same covenant. He has Moses recut will bring these stones so that he can rewrite his covenant. And as Moses is faithful to do this, God does reveal his glory. He says, yes, Moses, this is what I've been after in you. And then it says, we even see in verse 5, the Lord descended and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then verse 6 actually is, blesses us and tells us, how does God introduce himself to Moses, what does God see as so inherently important to him that if he's causing his glory to pass before Moses, he's going to describe himself in this way? This is what God says. He begins by saying, the Lord, the Lord. He starts with his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Hebrew word there, literally, it's to the Jews, it was a little play on words. It means I am who I am. Right, That there is no way for us to, in one name, totally capture all of who God is. So God's name, he says, it's just, I am who I am. The Lord, the Lord. And then he says, who am I? He says, I am merciful and gracious. That These two core attributes are going to separate God from any other God that Israelites would have heard, that they would have seen, they would have encountered. All the, the world gods, and this would still be true today, church, there's, there's no mercy. There's no grace. There is a standard, and then if there is not a lived up to that standard, then there is a punishment, right? Now, God certainly operates in similar manners, but God identifies he is merciful and he is gracious. That sets him apart. He continues, he says, I am slow to anger. Not only is God merciful and gracious, God is patient. And this is just kind of where, when I was reading through this this week, I don't know, if you've ever read and you start hearing God talk about the things that he does, and just whatever season of life you're in, sometimes they'll resonate a little bit more. The fact that God is slow to anger, that, that one was the one that hit me this week. That God is talking to a a people that he caught cheating on him, for lack of better words. And he says, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm patient. And when God is introducing himself and he starts with the covenant, he's basically taking Israel aside and saying, so where were we? Like, I understand what happened last night. Uh, so where were we? Like, like he's, he's bringing the covenant back. He's saying, no, I, I'm still going to marry you. Like, we had a deal. I'm, I'm going to uphold my end of the deal. This, this is the level of patience that God has with me. Um, Abigail can tell you, I'm not a very patient person, um, especially when it comes to myself, that, that I, I can be, uh, I have a high bar for what I believe I should be able to do. 
And it's very difficult to admit when you can't do something you feel like you should be able to do, uh, which then just makes me get angry twice over. Twice that, well, the first time I'm angry because I'm not doing something right. The second time because I should be able to do it and I'm not. It just makes you doubly mad. And here's God saying, that's not the standard that I hold you to. That's not the way that I treat you. That's not the way that I see you. I am slow to anger. And he says immediately after, why, why am I slow to anger? What makes me able to be merciful and gracious? I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is a wonderful Hebrew word there, hased, which is translated a bunch of different things in the Old Testament, but always comes back to this idea of steadfast love and faithfulness. That who I, God's saying, who I am is this faithful unfailing love for you that does not change. God says what you have done and, and the sin that you are in, involved in, the brokenness that you have, that does not change the way that I look at you. That does not change the way that I see you. That does not change my heart for the life that I have for you. God says you can change all of that in your sin, but that does not change anything about me. And in fact, he, he references in verse 7 this this little, some scholars called it an idiom, like a, a play on words, where God says, I am, I'm keep my steadfast love to the thousandth generation. My translation says the thousands, but most of them say to the thousandth generation, and I punish sin to the third and the fourth. And one commentator I was reading was talking about how we love to focus on the fact that God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation, and so we should really work hard because we don't want to be punished to the third and fourth generation. And the commentator says, but you forget God's also saying I'm faithful to the thousandth. I've not sat down to try to go through how many generations there have been in human history, but it, it doesn't take much of, a, much of a mathematician or a genealogist to know 1,000 is a lot bigger than three or four. And the, the expression that God is using is saying, look, I am equally capable in who I am to hold judgment and forgiveness right alongside each other. I'm equally capable of holding grace, undeserved grace, and warranted punishment by my righteousness. God says, I could do both of these things, but make no mistake, my heart in both of them is reconciliation. My heart is to forgive. He says, I'm, I, I know well aware of what's going on, and believe me, I will deal with it in my due time. He's, he's not saying, I just forget. But the, and, and I love for the Hebrew world, that was enough for them, right? They had this little idiom to say, you know what? We don't really know what the balance looks like. We just know God is capable to be just. He's righteously angry at sin, and yet he's equally gracious and forgiving. Great. I have a very hard time with that. I want to know what the balance looks like. But God, to his people, says, hey, all you truly need to know about me is know that I do both. But do not miss my heart my heart in being gracious and being judgmental. My heart in pouring out punishment and blessing. My heart is reconciliation. And I love that as God introduces this about himself, verse 8, what does Moses do? He drops to the ground and worships. That as Moses is confronted with the reality of who God is, he can't do anything but worship. And out of his worship, verse 9, he says, God, 
if that's who you are, if you favor me, please go with me. Please lead the people to be right with you. That, that this heart of worship, forgiveness, interceding, all these things we've been talking about, it starts when they really meet who God is. I tell you, I, when I'm thinking about how God responds to sin, you know, the, the anger and the judgment piece that we started to see at the beginning of 32, that's to me where God starts. And God says, well, I, I certainly feel those things, but the way that I am working and choosing to work with my people, what actually brings them to know who I am, I introduce myself. And it fits with what we saw last week, church, that he's not trying to get his people to pursue his favor, to pursue his power, to pursue his blessing. It's noticeably absent from God's introduction here. We don't see anything about God saying, here's what my power looks like, or here's what you have to do to get my favor. Here's what it is to have my blessing. He says, here's who I am. First off, I am who I am, right? There's no one like me, no one beside me. He says, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and you will not understand this about me, but I am equally capable of forgiving and punishing at the same time. But make no mistake, people, what I am after is reconciliation. And when Moses hears this message, he drops to the ground and worships. We'll get to the application later, but I'm... I'm confronted with a heavy heart this morning. I go, okay, <laughs> so if I want people to have that deep heartfelt worship of God, that desire to be in God's presence and to lead others, maybe I have to kind of show the same heart towards them that God showed towards Moses because Moses seems to get it. But this is not the only thing God does. God begins by introducing himself. The second thing he does is he invites us to covenant with him. I love in verse 10, he says, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Moses, lest you guys forget what I am doing, what I am after. I've told you this a million times. You're going to hear it again. I am making a covenant. Here's where we're going, Moses. And in doing so, it's this, this picture of God showing up to his people saying, This is who I am. And because this is who I am, this is what I will do for you if you choose to enter into this covenant with me. And if you choose to enter into this covenant with me, here's what being faithful to that looks like, right? God's saying, here's who I am. Because of who I am, here's what I will do. Will you be in this covenant with me? And he reminds Israel, being in this covenant means I'm going to set you apart from the other nations, verse 10, so that all the other nations of the world are going to know, man, what does it look like to know God? God's saying, the way I choose to review, reveal myself to my world is through, through you, Israel. Verses 11 through 16, he says, if you're going to be in a covenant with me, you're not going to covenant with anybody else. And he kind of reminds them about Egypt. And he says, remember... When you were covenanting with something other than me, uh, what did that get you? That got you maybe a little bit of earthly provision. It also got you 430 years of slavery. Maybe you don't want a covenant with somebody other than me, Israel. Verse 17, God says, if you're going to covenant with me, you're not going to try to make another image of me. He says, that did not go well the first time. That deeply hurt me. Do not do that again, explicitly in verse 17. Verse 18, he says, remember... 
Again, remember you were in slavery in Egypt. I delivered you. If you're in the covenant with me, you are a people delivered. Right? That should change the way we think about life. We're delivered. I mean, last week, like half the songs we sang, the freedom that we have in Christ, that is a reality. And then he continues in verses 21 through 24. He says, if you're in covenant with me, you will be a people of Sabbath rest. God says, if you, you're, we're going to need to keep getting to know one another. He says, look, if, if I am so eternal that the only way I can introduce myself to you is to tell you I am who I am, he says, it might take you a little while to get to know me. So God says, we're going to have these rhythms where you, know, you will work and then you're going you're to stay and bless me. And you're going to worship with me. We're going to have celebrations throughout the year where you just get to, you know, be in my presence, celebrate who I am. And ultimately, in verses 25 through 26, he says, this is what I'm after. You are going to be a people of righteousness. You're not going to conduct yourselves. You're not going to make these sacrifices as the rest of the world would. You're going to be people set aside for me. And after he kind of tells Moses all of this, he says, now write it down. <laughs> write it down so you don't forget. And the language, the, the word there he uses, covenant, is a Hebrew noun meaning divine constitution, ordinance with signs and pledges. Again, it's God showing up and saying, here's who I am. Because this is who I am, here's what I would like to do for you. If you want to be in this covenant with me, then this is what I expect. This is who I ask you to be. And if you're going to be this, then here's what you do. And church, I realize that, that that in a nutshell is really what our faith is about. That God has come to us and said, look, I made you to be in my image. Here is who I am. You have been broken apart from that in sin. If you'd like to be restored to this, here is what I ask of you. Here is who I desire you to be. And, and I realize when you lose sight of faith in terms of this covenant relationship with God, when we start to think about faith as other things, it actually it leads us to think about faith, but to portray faith to others as something different altogether. In, in different seasons of my life, there's, there's been times where I've thought about faith more as a, like a moral contract, Right? That if, if I believe this about God, and he has this standard for me, then, then my faith is really about, like, how well am I hitting the standard? How well am I doing everything that I'm supposed to do? And I think I can't be the only one alone in that because yeah, I listen to, to many Christians in the world today. And that, that kind of seems to be the language and the focus of what we think God is after, right? That he's after, you know, just making his people do the right thing. Certainly, if we're going to be in his image, that will affect what we do. But God's focus right here is not so much on the doing. There's been other times in my life where I've, uh, to me, faith has been maybe more of a, a mental exercise. Seasons where I'm thinking, okay, my, my doing's actually pretty good, but I, I really wish I'm, I'm growing kind of in the knowledge of God. And I hear that language echoed in, in many churches today that, you know, it's doctrinal purity seems to be the standard for 
one's righteousness. If, if we, maybe it's not about if we're doing the right thing, we get to be with God. Maybe it's if we think the right thing, if we can dot every I, if we can cross every T, that, that's going to make me truly be able to be right with God. Again, if we're in God's image, that is going to change the way that we think. And if his spirit is dwelling within us, that is going to reveal what his word says. We are going to, in doctrinal terms, we're going to get our doctrine right eventually. But as I'm reading Exodus 34 and God is showing up and introducing himself to his people, what he's doing in this covenant language, what he's pointing them back to, which is you know, what weeks, church, we were going through, basically chapter 20 to chapter 31, God is just kind of hitting the highlights of it here in 34. He's pointing his people back to that. He's saying, look, it's the same thing. Here's who I am. Here's what I plan to do for you because you are broken apart from me. And God says, if you choose to be a covenant partner with me, great. Here's what this will look like. Being a covenant partner is going to change what we think or what we do, but it was very humbling to me this week to realize that's not the language that God uses to describe what does it mean to be with him, what does it mean to be his people. It is those who are in covenant with him. When we celebrated our baptisms, church, that's celebrating people covenanting with him. That's celebrating people who say, I've, I have heard God tell me, this is who I am. I see in myself this need that, God, you're right. That's who you are. You've made me to be like that. I'm not there. But, God, I want to be. In fact, God, I want to be so much I'm going to give you the, the old vernacular that we use. We, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord, the one who is above me, the one who is over me, the one who's now within me. I'm asking Jesus to do this interceding work on my behalf because I know there's no way for me to be made right with God. You're joining into a covenant. It is so much more than just a moral or a mental exercise. And I, I, I see it's not an accident that when God shows up and speaks to his people in this way, now they get it. You could, you could look at the previous chapters and say, well, maybe Israel thought that God was just after a mental exercise or a moral exercise. And that's why they went to mental and moral failures in the golden calf. They said, well, if God doesn't really care about us, why he pulled Moses away. It's been 40 days we haven't heard from him. Maybe God doesn't really care that much. God's gone right back to his people and he's invited them to covenant with him. And the last piece of this, when they actually start to say, okay, we want to enter into this covenant, what does God do? He draws us near through his Messiah. He says, if you're going to agree to this covenant with me, I'm going to bring it to you myself. I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to make it accessible to you. And when you join into it, I'm literally going to come help you live this covenant. And I love, look at Israel's response here in the last couple of verses of the chapter. When Moses comes back in verse 29, he didn't know that his face was literally radiating 
light. His face was shining. It, essentially, it's, it's like looking into the sun because he had been in God's presence. So all the people, they can't look at him. They were afraid to come near him in verse 30. And I, I've always read this thinking, oh, right, because uh, we know the sun is bright. The sun is hot. You don't want to just go into the sun. I would read that kind of into Moses. And I did a little digging church this week, and I realized that that word fear is actually one we talked about way back at the beginning of Exodus. So it's okay if you don't remember it. But it's the Hebrew word that doesn't mean like a phobia, like you're afraid of something and so you stay away. It's the word that means to stand in awe of something. That Moses has come down the mountain. He has God's covenant with him. He has God's glory on his face. And Israel is just standing in awe. And that's really hard for me to picture because I, I think maybe this is just the world that we live in. I don't know that there's very many things I stand in awe of. Um, I mean, certainly I could think you know, the surrealness of what takes place uh, when you get married, that that was a day where I would stand in awe. Maybe, you know, being in the room when a child is coming into the world, you're standing in awe. Um, but there's just, like, we, we understand how things work so much that unless it's something massive, like a great miracle, or it, we just don't tend to be people that stand in awe of things. Moses is not really doing anything beyond standing there with the covenant of God and his face shining with God's glory. But for Israel, that's enough. They see that and they go, wow, there's, there's just something there. Like, that's, that's God. And I love that they're, they're so in awe, they, they can't move. They're, they're just like, what do we do, Moses? And what Moses does in 31, he calls to them. He talks with them. He draws them in. And at first it's only Aaron and the leaders, but then we see in verse 32, now the whole people come. And Moses gives them everything that God has said. And then we see in verses 33 through 35 that Moses starts to kind of go back. He, he travels back and forth from the mountain to go receive the next bit of the covenant, come down and tell the people. And it's amazing to me that this time, when Moses is going back and forth on the mountain, Israel's not running off doing their own thing like we saw earlier. They're at the bottom waiting. They want to see God's glory again. They want to hear more of the covenant. They're, they're expectant. They're, they're like, well, okay, when's Moses coming back? And it's, I love how it's almost poetic, but God puts the people exactly in the situation that they failed at last time. Moses was gone 40 days. They fell into idolatry. Moses is gone 40 days this time, and they're like, okay, Moses, what do you say? Like, like, what do we need to do? Like, we actually want this. There's, there is such a shift in the people that has taken place. And what God is doing, once they're saying, okay, we want this. Like, Moses, what, what do you say? There's so much in awe of him, they don't move, and then God draws them in. Church, it's the same picture of what God has done for us in Christ. When God shows up and says, this is who I am, You've been broken from this in your sin. You need a way to be reconciled, to be made right with me. And God said, I'm going to bring you my covenant in Jesus Christ. Will you accept this and enter into this life with me? We see Moses is bringing the covenant to the people. And as they accept it, man, Moses goes back and forth, brings the covenant back and forth. 
God continues to lead his people through what this life looks like. And I love he keeps, in a way, he keeps recharging that glory. So every time Moses comes and speaks, his face is still shining. Israel knows what's going on. So church, this is the big picture of what God has done with our sin, how he responds. We've seen the righteous anger. We've seen he is right to punish and promises to do so as he sees fit. But ultimately, he responds to our sin by introducing himself to us, reminding us of who he is. By inviting them to covenant with him. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I will do with you if you choose to be mine. And then he draws us near. He says, I'm going to bring you into this covenant. I know you're not going to understand how to do everything. I'm going to work with you to this end. As we start to think about application, church, I, I'm grateful there's, there's places in the New Testament where they point you back to the Old Testament and they make the application for you. Um, I'm going to flip over to 2 Corinthians 3.18, or chapter 3. I believe the words are going to be on the screen. But the Apostle Paul speaks directly to this. In fact, Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, there's this, this false teaching that they're wrestling with that's telling them you, we need to go back, right? That the law had its structure, the law had its system of what to do, what to think, and the, the people that are, you know, they're trying to tell the, Corinth, the Corinthian church, we need to go back to that, right? That structure of doing, that structure of thinking, that's going to get us God's favor, that's going to get us God's blessing. Paul points right back to Exodus 34, and he references it as he writes this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you, are, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, first off, why are you going back? Because that never actually helped anybody. You are our testimony that Jesus said and did everything he said and did. Your lives changed in front of me. He's, he's reminding the church, look, you're the greatest testimony that we have of this. We don't need to go back. But he continues. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. It's not because we've got it figured out that we've nailed this that we're confident. He says, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills. Referencing what the law in the Old Testament could do. Paul says that system, right doing, right thinking, makes me right with God. Paul says that system killed. I don't know about you, does not seem to be the end goal that God is after for us in Christ, death. Paul says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So he says it did have its purpose. Right? He's, he's saying, I'm not throwing out the Old Testament. It had its purpose in what God was doing at that moment. He says, because God clearly gave glory to Moses. God had his blessing on the people at that moment. He says, but if that had glory, 
which was being brought to an end, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's what the law did, then the ministry of righteousness, the Holy Spirit, must far exceed it in glory. Paul says, indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to an end, to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And I never... I never read Exodus 34 like this until I read 2 Corinthians. Paul says in verse 13, not like Moses. Moses was not bold in Exodus 34. He would put on a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Literally, Paul is saying that Moses, because I always read Exodus 34 and thought, oh, you can't stare into the sun. You wear sunglasses, right? That's why Moses put the veil. Paul says, no, no, no. It's because... Moses didn't want the people to see that his face wasn't going to keep shining. The glory was going to fade. Moses didn't want the people to know that he had to keep going back into God's presence to get it recharged and then come back. Even Moses knew that the, even though he had the glory of God, there was still something missing. Paul says, do not go back, church. There is nothing there that's greater than Christ. Verse 14, their minds, Israel's minds were hardened. For to this day they read the old covenant. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ do you not have to worry about is God's glory still with me or not. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled haste, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love what Paul does, church, because he says, look, God is doing the exact same thing he was doing in the law. He's always been about showing his people who he is. He's always been after this covenant. He's always been after his image. He says what God did in the Old Testament is what God also was endeavoring to do with Christ. But Paul says don't go back to the law. The way that we respond because we have Christ, that is what has changed. And so what do we do with all of this? Paul says first he tells the church at Corinth, work to know who God is. Paul says the greatest testimony of God's grace in Christ is in the lives of those living it out. 2 Corinthians 3, 2-4. through 4. He's saying to show who God is is an infinitely more powerful testimony than to tell someone what God does. To pursue who God is is an infinitely more powerful testimony than to confront others with what God does. Paul says that's what the Old Testament law did. It confronted people with the reality of what God wanted. And it showed them that they couldn't get there. Paul says that manner of living, that manner of ministry only could bring death. Paul says, so we have Christ. Do not go back to that. The aim of what we do here at New River Fellowship in our activities, our worship, our works, our partnership, the way we're structured, just in everything, church, 
is centered on leading others to be who God is, to be in his image, to be in his presence, not just trying to emulate what he does. Emulating what somebody does sets God up as something to try to achieve, to try to grasp, to try to take hold of, to make ours. Copying who someone is, man, that teaches us discipleship, that teaches us growth, that keeps God in his proper place, but as something we're aspiring to be like, we want to learn to bear his image. If any part of our structure or foundation is built on just trying to replicate what God does, church, we're going to fail at some point. Because we're seeing in Exodus 34 what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 3. He says that, that doesn't save. That doesn't change. When God shows up and he calls people into his presence, into his image, he invites them into covenant with him, he draws them near, he says that's, that's what does it. That's what transforms. So we work to know who God is. We invite others to learn to live in God's spirit rather than under his law. Paul tells us that our confidence for living in faith doesn't come by living under the law. It comes from living in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6 says that the Spirit has a far greater glory than the law ever did. Verses 7 through 11. And so I love, if you look then back at Exodus 34, instead of telling us what to do, Paul's saying, no, it's really showing you who to be. So who are we going to be, church? To live in God's spirit rather than under his law, we're going to be people of discernment and worship. Exodus 34, 11 through 16. Man, if Christ has given us the Holy Spirit, then we actually know how to worship what is of God and how to not worship what isn't of God, right? We're, we're not going to be people confused or blinded because we have the spirit. We're going to be people of celebration and joy, Exodus 34, 17 through 20. We're going to be joyful in the face of adversity and trial because we're going to be in these constant rhythms of reminding ourselves and one another of who God is. We're going to be people of Sabbath rest, right? This is probably the hardest for us, but we will be confident in God through Christ, learning not to be worried or anxious in anything because we're going to be with God. Just as we were singing, we will see him perform miracles. We'll see him provide. It's too good to not believe. How, how can we forget it? I mean, there, as John called it out, several of you guys have, just in your physical health, have seen just how mere miraculous God is, right? God says, can you not trust me with anything at that point? Ultimately, we will be people of righteousness. Church, the glory that God has given us is not fading. We're, we're not losing it. Paul tells us it, it worked like that for Moses under the law. It is not so with you in the spirit. And because of that, then lastly, we draw others into life with God through Christ. I just, I love how Paul tells us bluntly. He said, Moses, even though he had God's glory, he was ashamed because he didn't want people seeing it run out. And I think there, there are times and seasons in our lives where we maybe feel the same attitude, where we say, God, I'm, I'm not really sure if I can actually do this for you. You're asking me to make a change. I don't know if I can do that. 
You're asking me to give up something. I don't really know if I can do that. God, I see your word tells me I should be doing this, but I just don't even know if I'm there yet. Paul says it was in Christ, his death tore the veil in the temple, but also this veil here that kept us from God's glory. In the spirit, we have been set free and we are being made into God's image. It's basically saying, what, what are we waiting for? Israel had to wait to keep seeing Moses' glory. They had to wait to hear the next piece of the covenant. God says, Paul says, you have that in Jesus. What are we waiting for? If God's spirit dwells within us, church, there's nothing that is holding us back from being able to bear the image of God. I mean, it may be comfort. It may be harder for us. It may be we're just not used to that. But we are capable in Christ. This is the life that we have because this is how God responds to our sin. He introduces himself to us. He invites us to covenant with him. And he draws us near through his Messiah. So if we want to join him in this life, church, may we pray together today. Oh God, all sufficient, you have made and you uphold all things by the word of your power. Darkness is your pavilion, and you walk on the wings of the wind. All nations are nothing before thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them, and the earth that we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But you, unchangeable and incorruptible, are forever and ever God over all, blessed eternally, infinitely great and glorious art thou. We are thy offspring in thy care. Thy hands have made us and fashioned us. Thou hast watched over us with more than parental love, more than maternal tenderness. Thou hast holden our soul in life and not suffered our feet to be moved. Thy divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. So let us bless thee at all times and forget not how thou hast forgiven our iniquities, how you've healed our diseases, how you've redeemed our lives from destruction, how you have crowned us with loving kindness and tenderness mercies. You've satisfied our mouths with good things. You've renewed our youth like the eagles. May thy holy scriptures govern every part of our lives and regulate the discharge of all our duties so that we may adorn thy doctrine in all things. We are grateful that this is your heart toward us, Lord. May we be prompted to move in that today. In your name we pray. Amen.